Well, if we're saved by grace and God loves us anyway, does it matter what we do? Can I just do what I want? And I said, well, yes, but here's the point of Christianity. He changes your wants. That's, that's the purpose of Christianity in us, working out in us, to ch- is to change our wants. And the, the way he does that is twofold. He changes our perspective and then he gives us the desire for different things than we previously desired before. And he does that through the word and the working of the Holy Spirit in shaping our hearts. Okay, so are you with me so far? Right, here's the thing. So I, I just remind you of the, the, the kind of principles that we've, we've established so far. By the way, we're still in Ezekiel 36, if you want to find the, um, the, the passage we're talking about that I'm going to come on to again. But the first principle, and it, it, this isn't on the slides, the first principle, radical principle number one, if you remember two weeks back, God dredge your memory up, is there is nothing you have done or can do to earn God's love for you. Full stop, that's it. Nothing you do, nothing you can do, is going to make God love you any more than he already does. Because God is love. It's his nature to love. And God does not love you. This, this is a shock to religious people. This is a shock to most people who've been around church a lot, a lot of their lives. God does not love you because you are good enough. God loves you because he is gracious enough and he is good enough. That's how it works. Now, I could, I'd like to enhance on that, but there isn't actually anything more to say. It's just one of those facts that is. And that's the amazing thing about Christianity, that, that we have a God who, who would come and demonstrate his love for us by dying for us paying the cost of everything we have ever done or ever will do. And even when we didn't want him, he still loved us. And this is just absolutely amazing. And so that, that's radical truth number one. And then we come on to um, the second things, which is this, that in shifting our perspective, God's love for you puts you at the center of his heart his kingdom and his purposes. God actually thinks about you. God actually has great thoughts about you. We discovered last week that that God uh, thinks thoughts, positive thoughts about you as many as the grains of sand on a beach all the time. That's how he's focused on you. And he's put you right at the center of his heart. He, He treasures you. And that's irrespective of how you feel about yourself. It's irrespective of of, of your past. It's irrespective of what other people have done to, to you and what you've done to other people. God has put you as a treasure at the center of his heart. I just think, I think that's amazing. It's like, I, the more I say it, the, you know, I, I say these sort of sentences a lot and the more I say them, the more amazed I get. I'm not getting, it's kind of like I'm not getting used to them. They're, they're hitting me harder. Because it's so off the wall, isn't it? Yeah. I was like, if you were, if you were like a human, you're not going to come up with this. Like I, I was just thinking the other day when I was uh, 
doing the slides for this morning is, well, it's kind of like you couldn't make this up, could you? Because if you made it up, it wouldn't be this. It just wouldn't be. This is not like, this is not like God's where you, you, you have to take your offering and sacrifice whatever's to them and all that sort of stuff. This is, this is just completely different. Christianity is an absolutely radical faith. And so God loves you because of who God is, not because of who you are. Again, it's radical. It's, it's, it's a massive uh, mind shift. And, and here's the trouble because We've been taught differently to that in our life experience. Ever since you were, were a kid, you were told, like, if you're good, you get some good things, and if you're bad, you get some bad things. That's kind of a simplification, isn't it? Because sometimes you were good and you got some bad things anyway. Because people are messed up. You know, uh, just what Cheryl was talking about, if you, if you kind of want a bit more perspective on that, there's... There's this booklet, and it's free. It just sits on the welcome table. But it, it sort of talks about how well, these kind of helpful thoughts to put in context why, good pe- why bad things happen to good people and, and just how, how that works out in the world. Because sometimes we come up with a load of drivel, like God gave you something bad because he wants to teach you a lesson. And, you know... The sooner you learn, the less you bet. Well, there's a number of problems with that. That's not ever what God said. You can't find it in Scripture. But more to the point, I never ever found out what the lessons were I was supposed to be learning. And that's really frustrating. If God wants to teach you a lesson, it kind of handy if he told you what it was, wouldn't it? But he never seems to. And all these people who've ever said that to me, they never actually knew what God was trying to teach them. Well, God wants me to make you a better person. He's, he's doing this so that you become a better person. Guys, do you not think God's big enough to make you a better person, healed, whole, and delivered? Do you know, like, how tiny is your God? How small is he? If he can't handle a healed, whole, and delivered person and make him a better person. He's a good father. And so we need to understand that. So if you, if you kind of want a bit of reading, I'll pick one of those books up for free. There's... Don't worry if they're all gone. There's a box behind. It's got loads more in it. So we're okay with that. So we, we got on to Ezekiel 36 again last week. And, and verse 23 said this, And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. Remember what's happening here. Ezekiel is prophesying that um, to, he's, in, he's in exile with the, the people of Judah He's prophesying to them. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. Something new is coming. There's a new covenant, a new way of doing things. And here's the purpose of why God's going to do that. Here's the purpose of why he's doing this. And he says, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know what? I am the Lord. Says the Lord God, when? When I am hallowed in you before their eyes. You see, God's way of enabling the world outside the church to recognize that he is Lord over all, not just over the church, is when he is hallowed in our lives. 
That means when he's given first place, when he's priority in our lives, when, he, when, when people outside here can see that when they encounter you, you're different. The church is supposed to be different from the world. How many of you know that? You know that, don't you? You've heard that. Here's the problem. The church, the world doesn't see a church that's very different from it, except on Sunday mornings. Because we ain't playing football. And they're going, oh, they're strange people. They're not playing football. But come Monday morning, when there's not that differentiating factor, they're struggling to see a difference. And you see, I never mean to be controversial. I just say the stuff that, that I'm given. But this kind of is a bit controversial. I think the reason we don't look any different when we're out there is because we decided we needed to look like out there to get people to come in here. Yeah. And we were more concerned in numbers than we were in representing the kingdom in the 110 hours a week when we weren't at church or asleep. So we did stupid things. Like we surveyed the world and said, what is it you like about church and when would you come? And we were asking a bunch of people who didn't want to come. <laughs> guys, honestly, if you said, give you a million pound if you're in church on Sunday, those guys out there would be in here. You can do all sorts of things to get people into a building. But Jesus didn't want people in a building and he didn't want con just converts. He wanted disciples whose lives made a difference beyond themselves and learned to disciple others in that same making a difference mold. Do you, do you understand that? You can tell Jesus did that. Every time Jesus got a little bit of a revival going, every time he had a crowd, he walked away. Like Jesus, Jesus, like even at the peak of his powers, he upsets everybody. He says, unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're scarpered. And the disciples said, what are you doing, Jesus? You're messing our revival up. Do you not know in the book, Breaking the 200 Barrier, how to get your church to go beyond 200? He says, don't do that. <laughs> and you've just done it, Jesus. And he says, I'm saying the same to you. Jesus was not a mega church pastor. He was a mini church discipler. And they're very different. And here's the thing about mini churches. They look like they're failing until they are growing so quickly you are, they are unstoppable. Yeah. That's the difference. You see, the kingdom's not about adding a few people on a Sunday and getting a few more people in and then cajoling them out of the money so they'll pay for the show you're putting on for them. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is about changing lives. It's not a money-generating operation. It needs money to make it happen, but it's not, a money, it's not meant to be a money-generating operation. It's meant to be where our, our giving is a sign of our love for each other and for the world out there. Not, a, I've got to pay the mortgage on the building. I've got to pay for the new light set we need. It's not that. Okay, I should have upset everybody now, so it's fine. Shell's going, calm down, Mark, calm down. So Jesus, God's saying, oh, sorry, coming back to it. Ezekiel's saying, 
that when God is hallowed in our eyes, he becomes hallowed in the world's eyes. So the problem about God not being respected outside his walls, according to Ezekiel, is that he's not hallowed inside our hearts. And so, and God says, I'm doing this to protect my name. And you go, well, it's a bit self-centered, isn't it, God? You're telling us not to be self-centered, and there you are, it's my name. See, this is the thing about God. He's God, we aren't. We just have to remember that occasionally. He's God, we aren't. He is worthy of being hallowed. He is worthy of all our praise. He is worthy of all our demotion. And he is worthy of all our love. But it's a bit bigger than that, you see, because we're his children. And we, we, we are learning to know him as father. But sometimes we, we make him a kind of weak, wet father. And, and we don't like him when he doesn't do exactly what we want him to do, when we want him to do it on time. And we don't like that he hasn't fixed every single aspect of our life. And we, and, we, and we bother about that. He's not that type of father. Our father is the king of the universe. He is fully father and fully king. Even members of the royal family have to hallow the queen. How much more do we hallow God? He doesn't stop him being his, our father and loving us and having us right at the center of his heart. But he's also king. And, and so that, that has a reverence from us. The, unfortunately, the Bible calls that the fear of the Lord, and that sets off all sorts of things. But if you think of it, like, if the queen walked in the room now, what would our attitude be? We'd be reverent, wouldn't we? However we felt about whether you should have a queen or not, we'd be reverent. Because she's amazing. Every Christmas, she goes on TV and tells people about her faith. What an amazing woman to do that in this society. And so, God is the king. So, here's the thing. He, he's worked out that if we're his family, his best way of looking after his family is to protect the family name. And in protecting the family name... He's loving you because he's guarding the integrity, guarding the reputation, and guarding the wholeness of the family. He's doing his job as father. He's, he's defending the family name. And that's his way of loving us. And in doing that, ultimately, he is the center of the family. Him, not me. I'm not the center of the family. He loves me with everything he has, but I'm not the center of the family. He is. You still with me? Anybody really, really upset already? Okay, so let me just come to like radical point number two from at the end, end of last week. So we get here. In shifting our, our perspective, God's love for you puts you at the center of his heart, his kingdom, his purposes, but you are not the center of the universe. He is. And that we don't like that. We want to be the center of our own universe. That's been the problem since Adam. It's called self-centeredness. It's a skew, it's a bias that we have in everything that works out in our society. 
selfishness. And so it takes us a bit to get over that, to understand that's not the reality of who we are as children of God. He's the center of the universe, not me. Okay, so let's just take this a little bit further. Here's the point. He's God, the one who's worthy of all exaltation, all praise, all glory. The one who loves you to the depths of his heart. You were made to be loved. God didn't need to just have another creation. But he did want somebody to love. And he made us. He made you. And he's God. And that's the point. There is no one, not nothing, greater or comparable to him. And it's about, radical Christianity is about his glory being shown in us. And God's chosen to glorify himself and exalt his name by sacrificing his son in our place for our sins to bring us into relationship with him and heal our hearts to the point where he's glorified in us because people can see what he's done. And in, t- in return, this God that I've been describing, he gives every single one in this room the greatest gift in the universe for free. Not a little bit, but full on. And the greatest gift, the greatest treasure in the universe that God gives us is himself. To know, to enjoy, to love, to be loved by, to share his heart with. This amazing God gives us himself to enjoy, to know, to relate to, 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 to have fellowship with. If we want, let's have a long Bible word, fellowship. He has fellowship with us. He, he, he relates to us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know every heartbeat. And he, and he wants to be involved in every heartbeat of our heart. And it's just like the most magnificent thing you can give in the universe. It's like, you know that little boy, like, I have nothing to give but to give myself. Do you still sing that in primary school? Yeah? Well, it's like that. God's just got the same song. I have nothing to give beyond that could ever be better than giving myself. I gave myself on a cross and I continue to give myself to you forever. Just amazing. So he shifts our perspective. That's got you up to speed. That's the first bit of the the preach, yeah? So he shifts our perspective. And and basically, the second thing he does is in the light of all that, when we understand that's the way this thing works, what he next does, he, he changes our wants, our desires. That's something they couldn't do in the Old Testament. That's something that Ezekiel is looking forward when it says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to create in you this new heart, a soft heart. And so, here's the thing. When you truly follow Christ, you have radically new passions for God's worship, God's ways, God's heart, God's joy, God's delights, 
God's excitement, God's uh, um, hate. You, you, just, you just get excited about the things that get him excited. That's, that's how we many live. We're excited about the things that excite God, and we don't like the things that hurt God and upset God, and he doesn't like. So coming back to Ezekiel 36, so, you know, basically that's the second point that he shifts you on. So Ezekiel 36, here's the problem in the Old Testament when Ezekiel was saying this. They just had the law, and the law just told them how bad they are, but it didn't actually enable them to do anything about getting better. It just allowed them to have a, a, like a load of sacrifices that temporarily covered their sin, provided forgiveness for them, but he, he actually, they couldn't do anything about it because so, the only thing they had was willpower. Here's the problem with willpower. Even if our flesh wasn't involved, willpower still runs out. But with our flesh involved, it runs out a bit sooner. And, and so they couldn't do it. And God, you see, Jesus dying on the cross isn't just about our forgiveness. It's about our transformation. Because it's not about just our sins being paid for and one day getting to heaven. It's about creating in us a clean heart and a new heart through birth, new birth through the Holy Spirit so that we might change into his likeness and get away from all that stuff that was hurting us, destroying our relationships, destroying our lives, wrecking our finances, wrecking our health. And he said, I'm going to give you a new heart. And that new heart's going to have new desires because I recognize you can't do this out of willpower and effort and all that sort of stuff. So I'm going to come and live in you and I'm going to help you to do it because I've said wherever you go, even to the ends of the earth, I will be with you always. Why will I be with you always? Because I'm living in you. And that's a whole new ball game. So... He recognized that they had this problem. You know, we talked about it in Proverbs 23, verse 7. Jesus said, as a man, uh, in Proverbs, he says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The way you see yourself is who you become. And all the law did for anybody was tell them how bad they were. If you've grown up in your life just being told how bad you are by your parents and your teachers, you think of yourself like that. Even, even when somebody like me tells you that he's just wrong, it's still in there. You need something that helps you change, changes the shape of your heart, and that is the Holy Spirit. Taking the word of God and making it alive to your heart. You see, these, these things that people were doing, these sin actions, these wrong things, are not the problem. We've got to understand that. I was talking to... Uh, Rock Solid this week in, in Haverhill. And it's kind of like, it happens every time I do it. It's kind of this shock moment when I, I say, your sin actions are not the problem. You doing sin, you sinning isn't the problem. It never was the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. The problem is your heart. That's the problem. James says, each man is led away and enticed when, by his own desires. And when that happens, then that gives rise to a sin action. It's the desires that are the problem. And in, before Jesus, there was no way you could change your desires. You, you, you just had this heart of flesh, this um, self-focused drive. See, that's why, I mean, many of you know this, but 
I hate religion. I hate that you've got to do this for God to be happy with you. Because religion has taught us we have to do things to solve the problem of sin in our life. Israel had 2,000 years to have a go at that, and they failed every single time. And they probably knew their Bibles better than we did, and they probably were more faithful in their attendance at everything than we did, and they probably took it a whole lot more seriously than most of us ever did, and yet they failed every single time because they needed a heart fix. And we still try and tell people, sort yourself out, Try harder. Do this. Sort that. You failed here. You failed there. How could you have done that? Confess this. Confess that. And we have this whole religious system. And you get this religious system in the mustiest, moldiest, dustiest of buildings. And you get it in the darkest, neon-lit smoke machine buildings too. It's not about the setting. It's about the message. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. There is nothing you can do to earn that. And he has given you new birth so he can empower you to get free of the stuff that held you back. Amen. He's changing you, not changing the service format, not changing the scenery. Not changing with the fashion that we need everything blacked out. None of that. Not changing that we have gloriously comfortable blue seats as opposed to hard wooden pews. That's not what, it's not even the issue. It's not like, even God's not thinking about the seating arrangements. Okay, let's, let's go on a bit. So in Christianity, well, no, I'll, let's go back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 25, 28. He's, he's God promising this. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I cleanse you from all filthiness and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of flesh out of you. Um, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It, it doesn't read very well in his translation, but a softer heart, not a heart of stone. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You keep my judgments and do them. Why? Because I'm living in you. You've got a new heart. Then you'll dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You'll be my people and I will be your God. Here's radical truth number three. Are you ready? Week three, radical truth number three. In Christianity, you have a new heart put in you by God. He did it. His spirit that desires to live for his glory, his worship, and his ways lives in you right now. There is no other religion, philosophical system, or anything else that has a God who comes to live in them, to change them, because he loves them. This is just like the, the most immense thing about Christianity. Christianity at its radical true self has a new heart, new wants, new purpose, a new spirit that desires to live for his glory. Yeah. It does. Yeah. 
If that is not what ours looks like, our experience, it's not true Christianity. That's why Paul's saying, you know, when they say, well, can, you know, all this grace thing, God loves me anyway, I can't earn it, I can't, it's not nothing that I've done, does that mean I can just do what I want? Paul's saying, you've missed the point. God forbid, he says, no, <laughs> stupid people. The point is, this is what Ezekiel prophesied. A new heart, a new set of wants, a new set of desires. The Holy Spirit alive in you. Now you've got a choice. Use it or not. That's the only choice we have. Use it or not. And here's, here's what concerns me. Because you knew I was going to be concerned about something, didn't you? Because I need to take you just one little step further. You see, this is my worry at my heart because I, I, I get more time to worry about these things than you do. And as a pastor, I kind of get paid to worry about these things. And then having worried about them on your behalf and, and wept about them and prayed about them, I kind of hope that we'll worry about them too and do something about them. But I can't, I'm not, I can't do that bit for you. So here's the thing. This is what I worry about. I worry that we, as the body of Christ, particularly in the West, have redefined Christianity. That's what really worries me, that we've re redefined Christianity. And, and it worries me because Jesus said, just before he comes back, that's kind of one of the early signs that he's coming back. And Peter says, just before Jesus comes back, that's what it's going to look like. We're going to have a redefinition of Christianity that isn't Christianity at all because it's lost its first love, its first passion. Yeah. And because of that, I think we build in an automatic source of disillusionment into individual believers. Because we end up missing the very things we are promising people they can have. We end up promising all sorts of things, but they don't get them. So they get disillusioned because we've redefined Christianity in a way that doesn't work. And yet the only way we can keep people is to promise them things. So we keep on promising. But ultimately, some of them get disillusioned. You see, I, I think that's what's happening in our nation. And that's why I think our nation, right now, you can see the evidence. He's, it's been plundered by the enemy. It, it's been plundered at the level not just of, of universities and people in power anymore. It's been plundered at the level of four and five-year-olds in primary schools where the, the philosophy and the ideas of the world, they've just been piled on them. And he's, they're taking, they take, the enemy's taking our ancient places and our values have been kicked into touch. I, I just think it, it, it's the saddest thing. Like one, one of the things that I would love is for us to uh, partner or share with people who've, who've got a building. And yet we sell buildings to 
for Muslim worship centres. We sell buildings for housing development. We sell buildings for carpet showrooms. Because we've lost the kingdom perspective. We don't understand because the enemy has plundered our value system. And our value system has become money. And, and I, it really concerns me. And here's why I think we, we, we kind of redefine Christianity. I just want to do a little illustration. For, for a little illustration, I, I need two uh, beautifully uh, attired, handsome, strong assistants. And I did prime them beforehand, so they are going to come down. So look at these two beautifully attired, gloriously turned out assistants. And uh, Roger's going to get me, me, me a couple of props here. But here's what I think. Here's what, so you, I want you to go away and think about whether I'm right on this or whether I'm wrong. It's up to you. I, I'm not, it's just what I think, okay? You know, like when Paul says, it's what I think, not necessarily, it's not, I haven't got this direct from the Lord. I think I got it direct from the Lord, but, you know, you, you, that's for you to. See, I think the idea we communicate today is that a Christian is somebody who actually loves the ways of the world. And here's the problem. He finds out through some, some wonderful person that the words of the world aren't too hot for his eternal destiny. In fact, well, maybe they're a bit too hot for his eternal destiny. And, and he, he doesn't like that prospect. He finds out the ways of the world lead to an eternity separated from God and in hell with the enemy. And he goes, I don't really like that bit, but I do like the ways of the world. And so we, we, we do the thing, like, if you die tonight, do you know where your eternal destiny would be? And they go, Phew. Could do we're getting out of the, the way, way we're going here. And so what we do is they, they go, no, I don't. I, I, I need to make sure I'm going to heaven. And we say, right, okay. So we say a prayer. We say some words. And we go sort of through some rituals and a few hoops to jump into. Uh, and at some point, we give them some assurance that they've jumped out of the line where they were going to hell, into the line where they're going to heaven. But they still love the ways of the world. And there's the problem. Deep down, it's not just the, the obvious way that, that we end up loving the ways of the world. It's deep down that we still keep on running our life and relying on the ways of the world to give us success. That's the problem. We, we, we fail to make, we make the transition from one line to another in our mind, but we don't make the transition into God's ways on which to base our life. Are, are you still with me? And so you can sit very happily in church because you know you're not going to heaven but nothing's changed in your life and nothing's really changing because on Monday morning, you still enjoy the ways of the world. And on Friday night, and that Netflix is much more important to you than anything else. And your life is run by 
what people think of you on Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and all the rest of it. And we produce this generation that, that think, if only we could get people to come. How do we get them to come? Let's look like them. And Jesus says, no, it's just more radical. Here's what happened. We have made this decision. So let's assume I'm the person that's just made this decision. Uh, Roger's going to stand to one side. Can you stand to that side? This leg moves better than that one. You'll see in a minute. <laughs> and this, this here is my immature, fledgling, <laughs> only slightly developed faith. There he is. There's my faith. And I'm going to get up here. And I've decided I want to do this Christianity thing because then I'm not going to hell. And I'm up here, and here I am. But I still love, so this, this, is, this is the kingdom, but I still love the ways of the world. And that's okay, isn't it? I'm fine. Aren't I? Yeah, I'm all right at the minute. I'm okay. I've got one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the ways of the world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you why it doesn't matter, because that's what everybody else around me. It doesn't matter to them either. I don't know any different. And then something happens. I'm kind of hoping that my faith will sustain me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> You see, 200 years ago, it didn't matter so much. Because the, word of the word, ways of the world and the ways of Christianity, they kind of had some common ground. But in our generation, the ways of the world have started to move away. I'm relying on you, John. My faith. And you see, the ways of the world are getting further and further. <laughs> and further and further. And now it's much more of a stretch and I'm having to lean to the ways of the world to stay steady or I fall. Thanks, you. That's far enough. <laughs> it's getting much further apart than this. No, it's not getting any further apart than that. <laughs> you see, at this point, there's only one thing going to happen, isn't there? My faith's going to fail and I'm going to jump there. Because I was already leaning that way. That's not Christianity. That's an insurance policy. It's a social club. It's an I want it both. But ultimately, your faith won't hold. That's what we're seeing. Do you see? Do you see? see, the only thing we can do is ditch that and stand entirely in one camp. Yeah. One camp. That's what we lead people into. That's the salvation we should be presenting. 
This is the version of Christianity that Jesus put out, all in one camp. Not stretching between the two and relying on bits of ones and bits of another. Because it doesn't work and it disillusions. And I don't want you to fall for that lie. I don't don't want you to be like this generation. That's my pastor's heart. But I I can't make that happen for anybody. You see, here's the thing. You're all I've got to talk to. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do this with anybody else. You're the only ones listening. But do you know what? People are starting to listen. Do you know what? We went to Croydon last week. First meeting of Life City. They've been meeting in a house since October. Well over, well, something close on 150 people in their first meeting. And the power of God was there because they're planted holy here. Norwich tonight. We've gone there. The power of God, holy here. The life. Calling people to this radical life. Bulgaria, reaching out into gypsy church after gypsy church. Touching hundreds of lives already. The kingdom is capable of looking after itself, but we have to stand in it. God is capable of fighting his own corner, but we have to be there. Let me show you. This is my last point. It's a long one. (laughs) They're going like, yes, no. (laughs) Here's the thing. The root context of Christianity, the radical context of Christianity, the place where actually the promises of God work, the covenant of God works. The inher- we enter into the eternal inheritance that he's given us. Here's how, it, how that is. God, you see, I, I'm not saying in any of this that God doesn't want to bless you and give you good things. If you've heard that, you haven't quite followed what I'm saying. He does. Yeah. What I'm saying is the way that Christianity has been dealing with it as a whole, it doesn't work like that. So you don't get the good things you promised. But we'll keep on promising because we don't want them to leave. And I realise saying that, you might just leave. But that's okay. This is in my bones. It's like burning fire and I'm not going to not say it. This is the context that Christianity works. Jesus told us what it was. Let me read you it. Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 33. Therefore, I say to you, faith life. Do not worry about your life. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on, That's clothes. Can I just say, I'd still like you to put some clothes on. (laughs) Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? He's going, wake up, guys. This is the kingdom. You're worrying about all the wrong stuff. You forgot that God is your source. You forgot that God is good. You forgot God's looking after you. And when you forget, it doesn't work. Here's the thing. 
Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they are? That's good. I didn't get a no. I didn't get too enthusiastic a yes there. Are you not more valuable than they are? Yes. Right, we're getting it. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Stand up, Roger. We're going to watch you grow. You have a good worry and we'll watch you grow. <laughs> you just stay there. In fact, worry kind of shrinks you a bit, doesn't it? It never added anything to anybody. So, this is Jesus, faith life. Why are you worrying? Consider the lilies of the field. You didn't get the bird thing, so I'm going to go flower power. I like to think the first for the men, the second for the girls. But maybe not. Maybe we, we could get in touch with our flowery side. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. So, here faith life. Now, if God clothes the grass of the field, which is today, and tomorrow is sown in the oven, how much will, more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Why are you so involved with the ways of the world and worrying on them for the stability of your life. You've forgotten that God is your source because you're at the center of his heart. He's at the center of the universe and you're in his family. He's your father and he's looking after you. Amen. Forget that, none of it works. Therefore, don't worry. Saying what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear, where we're going to live, what colour car we're going to buy, how's my career going to turn out, what's Auntie Flory going to think of me? I'm sure Jesus would have said those things if he thought of them. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all those things. He knows. He's not oblivious to it. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. By the way, that's his righteousness, not yours. That God-given righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You want to get the kingdom to work? Seek the kingdom first. You want to get the kingdom to work in your life? Stand on one chair, not two. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm just saying it. Louder, and in Cambridge. Well, maybe not, maybe not, maybe he did. Jesus said all sorts of crazy things, didn't he? Looks crazy, if you don't understand what I've just explained to you. Here's something that Jesus said which is crazy, which you'll understand now. Whoever desires to save his life loses it doesn't work. Whoever loses his life for my sake finds it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glorious Father with his angels and then he will reward each according to his works. 
You see, here's the thing. What Jesus is saying there is, you've really got a screwed up way of logic, church. Screwed up way of logic. Because you think in accumulation is stability and welfare. And there's nothing wrong with accumulation, provided it's not your source of stability, because God does want to bless you. But here's the thing. Even if you, this is literally what Jesus said, if you, let's say, do you know, by the way, you might remember from Nicola Valentine's preach, sort of to the back end of last year, where she showed us those pictures of the eight richest guys in the world and told us that actually their accumulated wealth was actually greater than the accumulated wealth of the bottom 50% of people who live on the planet. Three, three billion people versus eight. Yeah, remember that? Shocking statistic, but true. And here's the thing. Jesus says, even if you're one of those guys, and you give everything up, and you give it all away, and you get God, it's a better bargain. It's not, there are no bad bargains. If you give away the whole wealth of the whole world in order to obtain God, you have still done a good deal, is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, church, recognize this. That, that as we give up, as, as, as we, we, we put the kingdom first, we get a good deal, not a bad deal. Because we get God. And he's worth everything. Here's where I'm going to finish. Can I have the worship team back? Is that, are they still around? They're still awake. Excellent, still awake. That's good. That's what, that's what you want from your worship team, isn't it? Attentive to your preachers. Because I listen to them. By the way, can I, can I just recommend something? Because I don't come to listen to me. I have to listen to me in my head all the time. I don't even like my accent. I never listen back to me. I'm sort of like this northern idiot, you know, on, on the website that doesn't sound anything like I do in my head. But I don't come to church to listen to me. I come to church to worship with these guys. And to me, that's the best bit. I just thought I'd throw that in. So here's, here's where we are. Once we truly know God's grace, we will want to live for God's glory. That's the kingdom. We truly know God's grace and we want to live for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, first of all, that my visual illustration worked with no damage to life or limb. That shell says that was her prayer too. Why have you got the life insurance in your bag? <laughs> I'll start the prayer again. Father, <laughs> sorry, I'm in that sort of mood this morning. <laughs> Father, thank you. Thank you that you are so, so amazing. Thank you, Lord, that you, you spoke these words through your son, through Ezekiel, so that we would pay attention. Because you want good things for us. So, Lord, we look to you. We open our hearts to you. 
Lord, we choose to move wherever it's been, that foot that we've got, even a little bit in the world. And we're choosing to just shuffle it a bit to the left, towards our left foot, so we stand in one place. Solid on the rock that is you. Rooted in you. Rooted and grounded in your love. To know you fully so that as you have promised, you will fill us to all the fullness of God. So we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. And we choose to worship you. We choose to follow your ways. Lord, we choose just right now to to adopt this radical truth of Christianity. To put aside all the, the stuff, the fluff, around it. And just focus right on you. Focus right on you. And we declare you king. We declare you saviour. We declare you glorious one. We declare you worthy. We declare you source of life. Living one. Seated on the throne. Eternal one. And we rest in your everlasting love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And Lord, we invite you in right now. We invite you in, into our hearts. To, we know you're already there because we're born again. But we're inviting you now, Lord, to just be a bit more pushy on the shaping of the heart bit so that we can respond to what you've said this morning. Just take our hearts change our wants, change our desires to your worship, your ways, your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. Amen.